Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce. As an interviewer, it's not necessarily my job to put my own ideas or opinions out there, but at the same time, those ideas and opinions do come across in the ways in which I choose who to interview and then the questions that I ask. That being said, I think that the defining issue for me of this current era is the encroachment of woke ideology through government and education. Woke ideology is a mixture of intersectionality and activism and critical race theory and certain forms of highly evangelical progressivism. This ideology, as you might know, caused my college, the Evergreen State College, to implode in 2017 and put me on a path towards media I guess, starlethood, or whatever we want to call this, because I felt that I needed to speak out about how these ideas cause fractures between individuals and even within individuals. So today's interview is with Casey Peterson. Casey Peterson works for Sandia Laboratories, which is a major government contractor working in the nuclear uh, side of things in the government. And he began to speak out about the encroachment of critical race theory and intersectionality through his institution by means of HR trainings on diversity, equity, and inclusion. He took a very decided stand against this and decided to speak out about it and was very quickly suppressed within that organization and then put on administrative leave or paid leave. He put videos out on YouTube and is speaking out about this on Twitter, and I highly recommend you check out his videos. They are linked in the description. He is doing some excellent work detailing why this diversity, equity, and inclusion dogma is actually failing at what it promises to do, being diversity, equity, and inclusion. So this interview is to boost him and also to educate us more on the ways in which this ideology promulgates itself and how it actually doesn't all add up. So without further ado, here is Casey Peterson. So I came across your story through Christopher Rufo's uh, thread, his report on uh, Sandia Labs, and yeah. uh, he called you a whistleblower, or he he spoke about uh, documents that he attained through a whistleblower. Uh, and I would you let us know what Sandia Labs is? It's a pretty huge company. It looks like. Yes, um, Sandia National Laboratories is one of seventeen nationally national laboratories. We are a federally funded research and development center, FFRDC, and Sandia National Laboratories uh, has currently, I, I believe, um, according to my email list, 16,000 employees and contractors working uh, for Sandia, and they are absolutely critical to national security. Sandia uh, handles the non-nuclear side of nuclear weapons, among many, many other things, and we work with some of the most uh, brilliant and dedicated individuals in the world, uh, people that are true patriots and actually care about this nation. And the type of work that we do is, again, crucial to national security. And I could not say enough good things about both Sandia National Laboratories and the people that I work with. So this is um, kind of the backdrop to all, all of these things being pushed. Uh, it shows how important it is to push back on this when it is uh, this critical race theory has been injected into our workplace. Yeah. You said non-nuclear side of nuclear weapons. What would that be? Um, groundwork, uh, safety issues, stuff like that? Um, no. So uh, the nuclear the nuclear side of it would be lots of, 
Los Alamos National Laboratory, and they handle the nuclear package and actually handle nuclear materials. And then everything else to do with it that is not nuclear has uh, has Sandia dealing with that. And then Sandia does uh, a lot of other things for handle some of the nation's most difficult and sensitive problems. So okay. absolutely amazing organization and an absolute dream job. And what what is your role in that structure? Were you on the R&D side? Of so things? I am. Yes, I'm in research and development. I'm an electrical engineer, and I um, started working for Sandia National Laboratories about five years ago um, as an electrical engineer after receiving my master's degree. And uh, how did you get into electrical engineering? What was your track to do that kind of work? So uh, after, after high school, I joined the Army Infantry for five and a half years, and I had grown up with kind of a uh, hands-on mechanical back. My dad, my father was a mechanic. We were constantly making and building things. And um, I actually got into electrical engineering uh, kind of kind of by accident, I would almost say. I was in an argument with a, a, f- a co-worker in the Army, and we were talking about generators. And I had made uh, a very ignorant comment about generators and how they work. We were talking about how much fuel they consume based on, you know, just a little argument about how much fuel they consume based on how much load they have on them. And I was trying to, I was thinking like, oh, it's just magnets. It couldn't consume more fuel anyway. So this led me to researching my my thoughts on it and just i got very very obsessive about electrical engineering and i was about a year out from getting out and from that point uh, getting out of the army and i just obsessed over electrical engineering from that point forward and flowed right into it from there and it's been an obsession in a sense and so what was your college then you went from the military straight into uh, college and then worked your way up to uh, your master's degree is that kind of the track yes I went to uh, Arizona State University for my undergraduate uh, in engineering, and then I went to um, New Mexico State Uni- or University of New Mexico for my graduate degree. And with regards to critical race theory, diversity, equity, inclusion, did you see any of that in college? As far as training goes? Trainings or seminars, stuff like that. Yeah, I, w- I would say definitely. I, I, that, that's all throughout our colleges. And um, I had, you know, many, many professors pushing it. And there was classes that have been pushed on um, the colleges that I've been to for uh, diversity, inclusion, a lot of intersectionality and uh, these types of claims. This is obviously, um, a, I would say, an integral part of our institutions of higher learning right now. And that is is the reason that this so easily bleeds over into the workplace, I would say I see it a lot less in engineering. Engineering has a lot less room for nonsense. You have a lot of people more geared towards, you know, staying focused on actually teaching you something. And even the degrees are very lean. The amount of liberal arts and other throwaway credits that you have in an engineering degree is very limited. And the people in engineering seem to just be annoyed by the distraction. So um, I, I would say you're, soft arts degrees and your liberal arts types degrees and places like your HR type degrees would be much, much more heavily involved in this type of critical race theory. That's so pervasive. And what was your first uh, thoughts when you first encountered it? Uh, these trains? I, I would say me first encountering it. I, I didn't encounter it in college. I have been uh, somebody who pays attention to uh, politics and the, the world at large and formed a, strong worldview at a young age and continue to develop and 
uh, I guess, grow that worldview and expand it and shift that worldview as I, as I got older. So I constantly had my ear to the ground on these types of things. And the first time I encountered, I guess, what we would call critical race theory or inter- intersectionality was, was even 10 years ago, just, just following uh, politics and, what, and culture and what's going on in the shifts in our culture. So I, I've been aware of it as, you know, for uh, hmm. 15, 10, 15 years, my entire old adult life. And what was your first inner, uh, your thoughts of it when you first encountered it? Uh, it comes off as very, uh, very divisive. And I think that's a lot of people that encounter it for the first time. You, you, there's something deeply immoral and deeply wrong with it when you first encounter it. It's a very uh, divisive and, and hate-filled and even racist. It comes off as a very uh, a racist ideology because it not only does it uh, really tear down white men and put a lot of guilt on people that that don't that have done nothing wrong um, but it also puts a lot of um, you have a feelings of victimhood in this other this other group of minorities and people of color and uh, women when you bring intersectionality into it and it's very belittling to those groups the type of speech used it mimics white supremacist talking points so closely that it, it's it's very disturbing and so when you first get exposed to this you're kind of baffled that that the thought that the thought exists in america and then when you find out how widespread and mainstream it is it's it's a little depressing when you hmm. find out the scope of it hmm. you said that you had a strong worldview early on would you like to outline that what is this worldview of yours and how has it shifted um i guess I don't want to dive super deep into my worldview because that'll just distract from this specific cause that, that that we're fighting for here. I don't think that a lot of the people that are fighting beside me here at Sandia National Laboratories, I, I don't. They don't need to feel like we need to agree on politics. There are many people that have emailed me that just disagree on our politics, but also completely agree that this needs to be out of our laboratory and it's a very divisive ideology. And so my my worldview, I, I would say that I have a, um, a very strong values-led moral view uh, of, the, of the world. And I see a lot of things that need to be corrected. I, I try to stay very, I, I would say, um, data-driven or data-oriented in all of my arguments. And when people present me with another, another side or another way to view the world or another um, counterpoint to my own arguments, I always want to hear the absolute strongest arguments against my own viewpoints. And I, I, I'm constantly um, consuming media and sources of information that, that I vehemently disagree with. But I do it because it's absolutely necessary to continue to challenge yourself and ensure that you're not creating an echo chamber. And especially today, I would say in the last uh, in the last decade, it's become all too common for people to retreat into their own little echo chambers. And uh, they like to have everything that they already agree with echoed back at them at all times from their media sources, from their friends groups. And you see this with people purging their friends groups online that people that do not agree with them. So I would say my uh, my worldview is just <laughs> based in, based in facts and logic and taking a, a, a actual realistic uh, view viewpoint on uh, human interactions and political politics and pop culture there I was looking through the uh, 
documents that you and uh, Christopher released about Sandia Laboratories, and it led me to this company that's putting on these uh, workshops, these uh, deprogramming sessions for white men. It's got, I, I can't remember the name of it. It's got this weird name. I looked at their website, a lot of white, stock. White men as full diversity partners. White men as full diversity partners. It, it even feels like it's generated by some algorithm. It, it's really soulless. And then the, the website's all stock photos. And I found one uh, essay by one of the VPs of that place. And he says that we need to stop talking about data. Data is dialogue. And he made this really weird case for anecdote being the centerpiece of these conversations, as they call. Is that yes, been your experience our, Definitely. And I would say uh, a lot of the materials that were distributed and pushed on the national laboratories, our national laboratories, by our HR department were after this form factor. But they made the mistake of throwing some materials in there that made claims and tried to make them based on data, which is a huge mistake for critical race theory because their data to back up their claims has to rely completely on logical fallacies. And it, it, when you start putting actual <laughs> data and statistics and numbers to, to these things, now you have drawn a target for something that we can destroy through facts and logic. And so mm -hmm. they pushed many times saying, you need to listen to people's lived experiences. Yeah. But um, it's emotions and experiences are a very, very powerful tool for people to use. And a lot of these stories, like, uh, for example, the uh, George Floyd incident that happened, that is, I mean, I was very upset uh, seeing seeing that video and the, the things that happened there. And it's a very emotional, angering, uh, angering thing to see that. And from that, you can take that anecdotal evidence and tell people that this is a, a part that represents a whole. And you don't need to provide the data for them. You just need to, to point them at who to be angry at. And mm. people take action. So... I think that um, anecdotal evidence is at the at the it's their best tool. I can't believe that they. Um, I, I think they misstepped when they started pushing out stuff, trying to make actual claims based on some some botched studies and data. That's where they made their biggest mistake. Well, if it's all uh, lived experience, where does your lived experience come into the conversation as a white male? And how do you deal with uh, so, having that there and what they do with that? The, the lived experiences of white white males, uh, a lot of that, I guess, comes into play if we start talking, when, we, when they start having conversations with privileges. And w with privilege, they point out in a lot of these books and reading materials that we, we talk about that it doesn't matter how hard you put it as a white male, you still have this invisible knapsack of white privilege that you, that you benefit from. But no matter how hard it was for you, you still had more privilege than a minority person of color or, you know, a female than, than a female. So this, this idea of white privilege is all these lists they put out for white privilege can, can be easily debunked as well because you have most of the points rely on majority privilege. Some of them, if I call that white privilege, I say, okay, I'll concede those points. And a lot of them aren't very, uh, aren't, aren't very strong points. I guess I should add in right here that historic systemic racism absolutely, absolutely exists. Historic systemic racism has had, like, if you go back to the season of things, you cannot deny that there was systemic racism pervasive throughout the entire United States. Mm -hmm. But bringing this back to white privilege, these lists that they put out of white privilege, they're either, one, based on majority privilege, and their arguments for it are very, very weak, very, um, 
I don't know, things that I don't see as being strong, saying that you can easily turn on the television and see somebody of your race represented, or you can more easily find a band-aid with your skin tone on it. Those are the types of privilege. And then they have many, many privileges they stack on there that would be extremely strong privileges to have as a person if they were real. And they're completely on uh, facts that are debunked facts and uh, extrapolated data, um, logical fallacies, saying stuff like you are more, you don't have to worry about the police um, arresting for no reason and things like that. Just um, different, a, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of falsehoods pushed in the idea of white privilege. And if I can here, I would like to uh, go ahead. No, please continue. I can hold that question. So I said uh, in, in my video, uh, as I started going through this, uh, through this process of debunking this data and digging through all of the materials that our, our HR department and our company were pushing on us, I noticed that I could eliminate 90%, eliminate or great or nearly eliminate almost 90% of the claims on systemic racism through uh, their facts, supposed facts that they give with five simple checks. And I kind of gave this out as a tool for people to use so they could have a critical eye as they look to these materials as they're presented with new materials. And the first thing is you ask yourself, is this anecdotal evidence? And anecdotal evidence is obviously you can use that to prove anything. Anecdotal evidence is garbage. The second tactic that's commonly used in critical race theory is fast forwarding. They're using historic racism or outdated data. And they will take an instance or they'll start talking about things, you know, the slavery and Jim Crow era. And then they will fast forward to the present day and say, therefore, racism. And they jump past all that, that 60 or 80 or whatever years that they jump past yeah. straight to the modern day 2020. And progress has been achieved in the interim. So that is very misleading. The third thing is a lot of uh, is that they are not comparing apples to apples or they cherry pick data. They'll use a lot of statistical manipulations of, of data. There's so much academic malpractice in these type of studies. And this goes hand in hand with the fourth point that they base a lot of their arguments. This might be the most heavily used one that I saw, that they base so many of their arguments on the benchmark of, they say, unequal by the population benchmark, therefore racism, saying that by the benchmark of population, you know, black, black and white make up this percentage of population and the result is unequal, therefore racism. Mm -hmm. And choosing that incorrect benchmark make, makes no sense. If you say this many black Americans are imprisoned each year and it, you can say that's racism because of the population benchmark. But then once you go to a crime benchmark saying how many crimes are committed by these different groups, all of a sudden these disparities disappear. And so this one point destroyed so many of their arguments. Mm, okay. And finally, my final point is that the the you have to ask yourself, is this fully or partially explained by class-based disparities? Now, not all minorities or uh, black Americans are poor in the United States, but they are disproportionately poor. And mm -hmm. there is a discussion to be had on why that is. But if you can replace... Uh, black or poor in a claim with minority or sorry with with uh, black or minority with poor and get the same obvious outcomes and it is not necessarily racism there is more at play there and you need to dig in there's a lot of nuance to, to some of these arguments you evidently did a lot of reading on that side you, you went through a lot of the uh the books and the resources uh, at least that's what you claim in your video which is excellently put together again um by the way if it's so easily taken apart by thinking through it and arguing against it what do you think holds it all together 
What do you, what do you think is the glue that puts all these things together and makes it so powerful? So I wouldn't say that it's easily taken apart. Um, if for any of your listeners out there, if you're somebody that does not has not been presented with this stuff before, I, I want to show you how easy it is to buy into this. There are two okay. videos I challenge anybody listening to this to go watch. And keep in mind that these videos from front to back, um, from front to back are a hundred percent misleading or just outright false, all of their claims in it. But these two videos are number one, a little, these are both five minute videos and a little animated video called Systemic Racism Explained. And then second, a video called um, Racism in the United States by the Numbers. These two videos are hit fact, supposed fact after fact after fact, and watch that with a, uh, come into it with the mindset that you haven't been presented these materials before. It is extremely convincing. And we would like to think that critical thinking is more common in the United States. And even among scientists and engineers, you would, you would want to think that this, this type of critical thinking is, is more common, but it's it's not the fact that people are wanting to be misled or are ignorant or stupid. It's the fact that these, these arguments are put together to be misleading and a lot of very well-meaning people, I believe our, our leadership even is very uh, well-meaning, but they're the results of this ideology and the results of this training do not match the intentions so to say that this is um, easily disproven, I think, is misleading. I don't think it's easily disproven, but after you, after you disprove some of the strongest points to maybe a friend or family member, whoever is buying into this and pointing out that they're being misled, they, they will look at these from that point forward with a much more critical eye. Okay. So you brought up the intentions of it. What do you think, steel manning it, giving it the benefit of the doubt, what do you think the intentions of critical race theory and intersectionality are? Um, For the majority of followers of critical race theory, I I do think that their stated intentions are are their intentions. They want to make the world more equitable, more more fair, more um, correct. And I don't don't think that their intentions are wrong, but I think there are many, many people at the top of this that are well aware of what they're doing and their intentions are not pure. You talk about, um, if you have heard of the 1619 Project, their intentions are to push the the, the founding of America was racist. America was found, founded on racism. It's racist to its core. And every system in America is racist. And then that takes you to the conclusion that these systems need to be torn down and rebuilt after the form factor they want. So some element of this is a, um, a kind of a power grab. But to say that that made it into our national laboratories and that our leadership in our laboratories has this nefarious end goal is, is ridiculous. That is okay. definitely not the case um, okay. in, in that instance. You said that the outcomes of this aren't what the intentions uh, are, don't align with the good intentions of the people who implement it. What do you see the outcomes of this training to be? Yeah, so I would say that the uh, the outcomes of this training, they especially in the laboratory. Let's let's just keep it to our our national laboratories, our our um, federally funded national laboratories. They are just the outcomes are cultivating guilt and anger and resentment within the laboratories. We are um, actually deteriorating the confidence of women and people of color. These women and people of color, when they find out why, you know, when they find out that there's been some sort of affirmative action applied to them, they sit, they're sitting at the same table as everyone else. And a lot of these women and people of color are, are absolutely brilliant. And for them to sit there and doubt themselves and doubt they're there. And if they really deserve to be where they're sitting, it, it is ridiculous. And uh, additionally, they're creating a divisive and a very hostile work environment. 
and we have some videos coming out later this week where we're going to be highlighting that um, and, and two in particular and talking about actually uh, I would say I guess it's anecdotal but this is directly from the lines uh, the rank and file of Sandia uh, Sandia employees so uh, I guess you can stay tuned for that but they in the end all of this is threatening our mission to deliver excellence in our national laboratory and that is really why this is so vital that regardless of what happens to me in this everyone keeps getting caught up in the drama of what's going to happen to me and if i'm going to be fired or what they're going to do to me and that that's just ridiculous it's distracting from the, the main point that we need to be focusing on the national laboratories and getting this out of there what is this doing to our national laboratory currently what is this doing to our scientists and engineers and our uh, most brilliant innovators in our nation that are supposed to be working on national security that is where the focus needs to be and that's why yeah. this is so important and so 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 immoral to continue pushing this. It's important that we push this cause to its proper end and see this resolved. So it not only erodes the confidence of the individuals who take it upon themselves to believe in it, it also erodes the connections between individuals and therefore the efficiency of both the individual and the group are degraded over the course of uh, the adoption of this stuff. Is that, um, is that an argument that you can build data out of? to present to these different corporations to say, look, this is the stuff, this is, this is what it claims, this is what it actually produces. Do you um, think that that's the, so the, the best way to go about ta- attacking it? Yes, um, there is a, uh, actually a lot of data on damaging HR training. And there, there, so the point is, there's data on this, but there's also data supporting the critical rate there. So I, I would say bad data and studies. And so we, we need to actually be, we, we need more and better data on this. But these studies are showing us already that diversity training may be causing more problems than it's actually solving. And we see that this is actually big. Uh, makes the workplaces this type of training, not just diversity training, right? Diversity is a very general term. But saying diversity training after this mm. form factor, it actually causes a lot, a lot of resentment. And I highlighted one of those trainings in my video, but you have resentment in the workforce, and it causes divisions, and it even highlights people's differences and reinforces a lot of people's uh, racial stereotypes. This training, and it puts tension in teams that it wasn't in before. So, yeah. this type of training has failed spectacularly there's data to back it up but the point is in a lot of our uh, institutions i tried to point this out and i I was not heard i did not they did not want to hear my my facts and data did not want to sit down and have this conversation with me so getting them to hear your argument is the most difficult part of it okay um so you kind of have to make a stink in a way you you think or is that what uh, forced you into (laughs) this path i'm here I, I was I was essentially forced into this path, yes, and I don't. I guess I don't necessarily recommend everyone take this path, especially in the private sector. Um, we we are going to keep fighting back, and um, but th- the fact is, if you come out right now in a, in a private uh, job where they're pushing this, they're just going to fire you tomorrow. Mm. And so we are just starting this fight, and it starts at the federal level. But after this is pulled out of the federal level, that gives that much more ammunition to point out that this training is divisive. It doesn't belong in a national laboratory, and it definitely doesn't belong in the private sector either. And okay. it starts looking really bad on these companies that continue pushing that. So I think this is the first step in, in a longer a longer battle or the bigger picture. 
What was the thing that, you know, what was the straw that broke your back that, that forced you into speaking out? Like, what was that moment? So I, I very much wanted to go through the proper channels and I did not expect it to end this way. I, I expected them to resentfully pull these materials down and I, I expected po possibly some sort of recourse where uh, people were begrudging of it and promotions would be a little more difficult moving forward. But I was very surprised. Um, I went back and forth for about a month and a half, almost two months with uh, between HR, ethics, government relations, my upper management, uh, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually they finally came to me and gave me a final answer. And this was my level one and level two manager um, to relaying information from above. And they essentially told me that that this is part of our diversity inclusion mission. Yes, some of these materials were put up and possibly put up hastily and we need to take some of them down. But we have we formed a board that's going to review all these materials and take them down one by one rather than doing it the other way, t taking them all down and putting them up one by one. And they're still up right now as far as I know, uh, even after my video, my video dropped. And then they said, we appreciate you, you've been heard, um, but you are allowed to have your opinions at home and uh, other than that, keep your opinion to yourself at the workplace and get back to work. And that's what okay. I was told. And that's, that's the point where I said, okay, um, if that's your, if that's your answer, then I think we're done here. Okay. So, um, you, you brought up, um, some law, I think it's the hatchet act or if I'm recalling correctly, where employees hatch, can't hatch act. Yeah. Could you describe that? That's about employees sharing politics at work. That's about the employer and the employees sharing sharing okay. stuff at work. We are a federally funded research and development laboratory, and so we fall under federal laws. The Hatch Act prohibits them from pushing political viewpoints and us, even to the point that we have been told that even going out in the parking lot on government property and liking a tweet that is political is considered a violation. And okay. when they put all this material out, disseminate it, they put all of this below those disclaimers. And so they are hiding behind – they put some disclaimers out saying, first – you know, there may be political materials under here and whatever, and we're not liable for any of that. And then secondly, they put another disclaimer under there saying, like, you need to make sure you're not talking politics in the workplace because that's a violation of Hatch Act. So essentially, as long as we throw these disclaimers here, we can put whatever we want below here. And, you know, these are rules for you, rules for rules for you, but not for us. Okay. And so they are since since I put out this material, they have gone back and put these disclaimers in a lot of other locations that they weren't weren't before. Okay, so it sounds like they're going around and pointing out what a political viewpoint is that they're promulgating. How do we define what a political viewpoint is? So they have said that there are political viewpoints that, uh, I guess, uh, even them talking about supporting Black Lives Matter, they, they said that made it clear that that is not political. If you support the organization Black Lives Matter and a lot of the other things that they, uh, organizations they said to support, they, they said were not political. But then specifically calling out a uh, politician or a policy is political, and they did that a ton throughout their materials. Uh, the books, uh, 12 out of 20 of those books that they gave us on our resource reading list mentioned uh, or are very, very negative on Donald Trump, to be nice, to put it nicely. And that to talk, I mean, ag again, agree or disagree with these politicians or their policies, it is not it is not their job to be pushing politics in a government-funded laboratory okay uh so you would define politics or a political viewpoint as anything that's calling out specific policies or politicians is that correct 
Um, by their strict definition, yes. But when I came to them saying, because I, I thought that all of this uh, material was politically charged and controversial and did not belong in the workplace, uh, to say that by the legal standard we, we hit we, that this was political, maybe we didn't qualify at, at that level. But uh, the okay. problem is that the calling, doing something like calling to defund the police, which is something they did in their materials, is definitely political. And if they want to say that's not political, that's just that's just denying reality. Defunding the police is extremely controversial, and our government-funded laboratories should not be should not be talking about that. Or um, essentially, through Black Lives Matter, if you're supporting the the cause Black Lives Matter, they are actively campaigning to defund police. And a Gallup poll conducted just last month um, surveyed 36,000 Americans and found that 60 um, percent. Uh, 60% of black Americans did not want police force reduced in their neighborhoods, wanted to see the same amount of police in their neighborhoods, and 21% wanted to see more police in their neighborhoods. So that's 81% of the black minority com- community telling you to leave their police alone. And who are we as a national laboratory with our cushy jobs to tell a minority community that they need less police in their neighborhoods? They know what they need in their la- neighborhoods, and we don't need to be pushing this at work. Okay. How do you see that this came in to, to your company then? Did it come in through HR and then through, uh, I guess, upper management? Like, uh, and, and I ask that because I think that this is being replicated in other places. So if we can kind of identify the pattern of how it works. Um, definitely through HR. I would say it comes in through HR. I do not see any nefarious invisible hand behind this. This is something that okay. um, people that go into HR or ethics or these types of jobs, they uh, go into these jobs and get training through the um, in universities. I think they all have just a similar mindset. And mm-hmm. so you don't get a lot of diversity of thought in these uh, organizations. And so there is no coordination between them. There doesn't need to be any coordination. When the incident with George Floyd happened, they were more than willing to take that opportunity to do what they what they felt was probably morally right, no matter how misguided it, it may have been. I think they were, they were just following what they, they thought was probably the right thing to do. But what we needed to point out is that their intended outcomes or their intended results is not what we're actually seeing on the ground. And mm-hmm. it's immoral to continue pushing this. And we need this. Um, we need it. We need this from a federal level even. We need the laboratory to first take this out of the laboratory, then to take action on it. And then we need an executive order secondarily to to eliminate this from our from our federally funded workplaces. So your plan again, your video is incredibly put together because you, you mentioned the problems with it very system, uh, systematically and then you uh, address solutions. One one step is to speak out. Um, and and yeah. you're taking that step. What other steps are there to to do uh, with regards to Sandia Labs and then other places? Yeah, so I've put together quite a few um, videos since my first video discussing what we need to do as uh, Sandia National Laboratory employees. And then my most recent video talked about uh, it was something to the effect of becoming an, you need to become an HR watchdog. It was it was more focused towards the general public as well. We even made boilerplate emails and uh, gave email addresses of people that the general public, where the general public can email uh, their displeasure with how their taxpayer dollars are being used. They can email it out to people and let it be known. Uh, there is no, I can't say that, but there, there's not necessarily a wrong way to fight this. I do not have all of the good ideas. 
And I have a lot of people coming to me asking what they can do. And we have a very strong uh, effort and movement right now that's being very effective. But if you have other ideas, you, you can take action. There's people um, getting this message out there. There's a lot of people tweeting and retweeting or um, pushing this on social media and getting it into the right people's hands, trying to get this message in front of the nation, not just at, at a, a small local level. And yeah. so I think that's extremely important. And making sure that you're making phone calls. A lot of people are very uncomfortable reaching out and calling a, I don't know, the representative or somebody's office of a senator or congressman or, or tweeting things or um, talking to people on Facebook or whatever it may be. But that's what needs to happen. This is the uh, this is the movement. If you're waiting for a time for people to fight back against this, this is it. Ten years from now, it doesn't get any better. This is our moment right now. So mm-hmm. I may not be a perfect representative of this cause, and I, I try to do the best I can, but this is our moment to push back on this and push back on this hard. If we, if we fail to push back on this hard enough, all that's going to happen is they're going to water down critical race theory and take it and take out a few words here and there, take out a few sentences here and there, and then they're going to regurgitate that back on us over the next 20 years. So it is completely unacceptable that anything even resembling critical race theory is allowable in our national laboratories. And we need to make sure that we get culturally unacceptable. It needs to be put well outside of the Overton window and make sure people know that we do not want this anywhere in our public, in our public discourse at our places of work. So from how do you explain the problems with critical race theory to somebody on the outside? Like, what is the basic thing that you find uh, disturbing or wrong about it? Um, Fundamentally, I would say critical race theory looks at everything, every human interaction through the lens of race. And then uh, or uh, critical race theory bleeds into intersectionality. So race and gender, everything in the world, everything, every interaction, every institution is looked at through the lens of race and gender. And it pits us against each other. And that, that is a, at the core of the problem. You're constantly, you either have to, you have to take sides on it. You are either part of the problem or you're part, you are either part of the problem or you're part of the victim class. So it is a very divisive uh, rhetoric to be pushing on, on Americans. And it, when you have to buy into so many, so many falsehoods and lies to be able to accept this, you see very quickly how, how morally bankrupt this movement is. Hmm. So say you uh, walk into a, you know, one of these workshops and you are told to take an inventory of your privilege from your perspective, looking into this and fighting against it now, what is the purpose of assigning myself as a white man, all this privilege? What am I supposed to do with all that? And how could that possibly be a good thing? So Teaching, teaching you your privilege is, if you, if you read one of these books, it it's, comes down to activism. It comes down to getting you to a point where you first start out reading these books and it starts very moderate. Then it leads you into the idea of privilege. And then it leads you into the idea of unconscious bias or unconscious racism. And eventually you are sitting there and if you are accepting all this, you, you are reading those books and you're at the point that like, oh my gosh, what can I do? What can I do to make this right? What can I do to not be a racist, not be a white supremacist? And then comes the pitch for activism. And it is just uh, essentially uh, a, a far-left activist checklist where you are supposed to uh, support every single policy um, that, they, that they want you to support. So it is a very effective recruiting tool. But I think 
the goals behind a lot of this are are not pure of intentions and pushing this this idea that white people need to feel guilty for all those different things i will say that white privilege if we want to get general about it you could say white privilege exists at some level right but you could also say that uh genetic privilege is much more prevalent than white privilege you could say that um you could say that privilege for black people exists there's black privilege there's asian privilege there's privilege when when you start breaking it down like they do you you quickly realize yeah, you could say there's privilege in different races and, and, and privileges of being gen- different genders and things like that. But to say that your white privilege outweighs what we currently uh, or is racist and it outweighs anything that you would see on the side of, for example, genetic or two parent privilege or black privilege is ridiculous. The, the facts mm-hmm. just don't support that. Mm-hmm. So if you were speaking to somebody who is uh, progressive leaning or liberal or left and they see, they're surrounded by this stuff, but they see that most of the criticism is coming from another political point of view, how do you argue that this isn't real progressivism or that this is uh, defeating a progressive cause? How do, you, how do you ensure the progressive that they can still champion what they consider to be progress without this? Um. I guess it becomes very difficult because uh, despite despite uh, wanting to always argue in facts and logics, you I, I'm sure everybody out there knows that there are many many people that do not uh, do not want to hear it. But for those that are logical and well meaning, and those people that you have good relationships with, you just need to be very careful in the conversations you have with them. You need to be focusing on the outcomes, the data. When they present you with something to support their cause, drill down and ask them. You say, "What is the greatest evidence or the biggest smoking gun that you know of of systemic racism or white privilege and and make them make them select one even come back to the conversation later and say just think about it and get back to me and then take that you don't have to answer it on the spot take away and do some research on that and come back to them with facts on it and you know you only need to allow them to debunk you know just two or three of these things before a well-meaning critical thinking person will quickly realize they've been lied to and that's hmm. that's the, when you start showing them the outcomes of these intended policies, or if they're even willing to read a book, there's a book by uh, Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is absolutely brilliant. He writes a book called Discrimination and Disparities, and he talks about the uh, intentions of policies versus the actual outcomes. And it, it gets people thinking critically about these things. And so if you have somebody that is uh, in your life that is, is that critical thinker that is well-meaning, then just be very patient and very moderate with your conversations. Hmm. Because they are extreme. There's a lot of very intelligent people that have bought into this, and they don't want to be lied to. Nobody likes being lied to. And when they realize that, when they have that aha moment, you do not need to talk to them anymore about it. They will. They will seek out all of that information on their own. You only need to take the first few steps for them. Mm-hmm. I hear your resistance to talking about yourself, but I like to ask this of most of my guests, those who bring it up. You you mentioned the value or the importance of critical thinking. What was why did you choose that path? Like what was something in in your development that proved that that was the correct way for you to go? What set you down that path? Uh, that that has always been in my nature. I think that's in the nature of pretty much all uh, engineers and scientists to have uh, critical thinking. Um, I think that more important than critical thinking, uh, if, if we want to talk about me, is, is the 
uh, is values and ethics and morals, because I feel like that is at a at the core of who I am is seeking out the truth, regardless of how uncomfortable it is. I have, especially when I was younger, I, I've been proven wrong and, and shown to be foolish in so many, so many instances. But I did not retreat into my own little bubble after that. I actually sat back and reflected and changed my points of view to reflect the world around me, not the other way around. I don't, I don't change and change my view on or. I don't change reality to fit my worldview. And I think that's unfortunately what happens with many people uh, is that they like to retreat into their own little bubbles. So I think at the core of it is, yes, seeking out truth, but then having a very, very strong sense of values and morals. And that that was only intensified when I had a family and children. After having children and realizing what I want for them and realizing that uh, their personal individualism and their core character is the absolute most important thing about them and starting to develop that and ask yourself the question constantly of what is the most important thing to be teaching my child well how do i make them the best person possible how do i make them the most moral and upstanding person possible and though that really clarifies your worldview overnight Mm -hmm. if people out there that do not yet have children it is an absolute game changer when it comes to changing the way you view things Hmm. Are you able or comfortable to explain, like, you brought up, what is the absolute most important building blocks of a good character uh, from from your perspective? And I ask that uh, because this intersectionality stuff is being promulgated through preschools, kindergartners, and all the way up into high school. It's it's throughout our entire education. So if you're going to dismantle that whole project, where, where do we begin? So I would say that um, with beginning with decency and tolerance is a really good starting point. Um, having uh, teaching your children, we're constantly having conversations about uh, honesty, integrity, your your personal courage, standing up for those that that need to be stood up for, and and really drilling that in because that is a that is given lip service to many times, but I. We try to really drill that home and saying it does not matter if you're standing up and there are a thousand people standing behind, uh, standing in front of you telling you that you're wrong. If you're standing up for truth and decency and standing up the, for those who need to be stood up for and doing what's right, it doesn't matter who is behind you. You don't do it because it makes you feel good. You do it because it's the right thing to do regardless of who's standing behind you. And so having those very strong core principles and then viewing the world through that through that lens of, of tolerance and seeking truth in all things regardless of the of the conclusions or how uncomfortable it makes you feel or how offensive the facts may be those those are at the core of, of forming a a proper worldview and forming a strong moral character hmm. you you said standing up for those who need to be stood up for. That is one of the core tenets of intersectionality, of uh, critical race theory, of the the progressive project writ large. That's the same exact value that they champion, that this is for those who are the underdog. You Once again, disagree. we go back to we, – we, we go straight back to intentions versus outcomes. Uh, this is this is at the core of all of it. You talk about intentions. If we talk about actual actions and the outcomes of those actions and follow those through to the uh, rightful ends, that's why you will have um, people on my side of the argument continually talking about the outcomes and people on the other side of the argument are continually talking about the intentions. Hmm. Like I have a lot of their intentions I completely agree with. Um, disparities exist. There are things that need to be corrected, especially in our minority communities. There are actual disparities and real problems that we need to address. But unless we are having an honest conversation, those are never going to be properly addressed. When we talk about policies that do nothing but sow division, 
all you are going to do is continue continue getting the same problem again and again. So I think at the core of it is continually pointing out the actual outcomes versus the intentions. I do not think anybody at our national laboratory intended to divide divide the workforce, intended to make people feel unwelcome. Nobody intended to make these women or people of color feel lesser than anybody, but that is the outcome. So regardless of your intentions, I don't care about your intentions. I care about the outcome. And once you see the outcome and recognize where that outcome came from, then you can realize where the true problem lies. And we need to remove critical race theory and intersectionality out of our HR departments and out of our national laboratory. So you are participating in a uh, literal groundswell uh, uh, against this. And uh, I've been part of that as well. What are some of the steps that need to be taken other than people reaching out? What are some of the resources or uh, you know, um, you know, steps that need to be taken other than reaching out? Yeah. So I would say first and foremost, if you're becoming part of this and you're, you're not necessarily part of the laboratories, but you work, you work somewhere in these companies, you need to pick up their materials. When they have these classes and trainings, you need to show up and become an HR watchdog. Watch these trainings, show up to them, read their materials. You need to be more knowledgeable about their own arguments than they are. If I wanted to argue right now at this moment, proving that systemic racism exists in the United States and do it through their facts and data, I think I could do it more effectively than many of the, many of the people pushing this laboratory. You need to become more well-versed in their own arguments than even they are. That is step number one. To stop shying away from these, these trainings. They are, they're horrible. I know. They are not comfortable. It, it, is, it is hard going to these trainings and seeing this kind of divisive rhetoric being pushed on people. But it is important that we, we become those watchdogs. And then secondly, uh, be smart about it. Don't get yourself fired just because you're upset. Make sure that you are there and you're fighting in a manner that is uh, – start from a point of – caring and inclusiveness and understanding don't think that everybody has nefarious motives be very understanding of other people's points of view and push not from a perspective of not wanting this talked about in the workplace push from a perspective of wanting inclusive and inclusive and sorry diversity and inclusion in your workplace you need diversity and inclusion that is a great part about america us being a melting pot us taking the best parts of every single culture and putting them all together into this amazing american experiment so you need to champion those causes. You can align with many of the same outcomes they desire or many of the same intentions, but you need to show them that the outcomes are different and show them a different path towards those outcomes. Hmm. Okay. You mentioned earlier about an executive order. What form do you see that taking? And an executive order, I, I assume, about the federal government, right? So what, what do you think that that would be built yes. out of? So I think that first and foremost, the laboratory needs to take action. The laboratory needs to come out and recognize what they've done and take action at, the, at, at a level of the national laboratories, at a level of Sandia National Laboratories to eliminate this. But then we need to be realistic about this and recognize that just because this is eliminated at a workplace level does not mean this goes away. This does not mean that this is that, that we're all done. And the second step in that process is an executive order. An executive order shores it up where we have something to stand on and say that this needs to stay out of our workplace. It's divisive. It's destructive. We don't need to have this dis distracting battle again inside of our national laboratories. We need to get back to work and focus on national security. And that that's something that we need national attention for. So pushing and promoting this cause in any way that you can, every single individual listening to this, pushing it and what and getting this word out there and, and getting um, reaching out to people that are championing this cause already is important. And then finally, um, if 
executive orders even are somewhat temporary. So in, in the very long term, if possible, this needs to be taken, taken through to legislative action. And we need to have laws passed to make it much, much more difficult for this creep back to creep back into our, na- our national labs because this is affecting national security. And okay. I, I refuse to put our national security at risk. Okay. So what would they be calling out? What would the legislature and the executive branch be calling out? Like, would you, would they just say critical race theory? Would they say intersectionality? Because it seems like the proponents could just shift around the language. What are, what are we specifically calling out? Uh, anything that re, uh, reduces people to identity and sows unrest between those? Yes, and that's that's obviously somewhere where I don't have 100% of details, and I've started shifting my focus there because uh, a lot of times you ask for these things and you realize the people on the receiving end don't really understand what you're asking for. And we yeah. need to ensure that we are very specific in our asks. So that is something we are putting together to make sure our language is extremely clear and the wiggle room, we have no wiggle room in what we are expecting. Okay. Um, we have, so I think that... Uh, it's important for us to to ensure that we clarify our message and that we start uh, even one idea that we had is to start a process at sandia there's claims on both sides right that there's bias in hiring there's racism in hiring there's there's claims from white individuals saying there's sexism and racism in hiring against white people and there's claims from the other side saying there's racist racism and sexism in, in hiring against people of color and women and so i think it and in promotions especially and so I think it's important that we start a, a blind process. We should make this at our national laboratories. If, the, if that's the claims on both sides, we need to make this process blind. We need to make, make sure that as you go into promotion, you aren't assigned a name. Nobody knows who you are. All of your information goes up to this board or panel that's determining if you get promoted. It's entirely independent of your race, your gender. And they assign a, name, a number to you, a code to you, and they all assess you independently of, of your race and gender. Same thing could be done. This is uh, 2020 in, an, in a flagship national laboratory. They definitely can find a way to to take out the bias in this process, even in hiring, you have you have ways that you can take out the bias almost entirely uh, up until the very end of a face-to-face meeting. So I think that is a very critical step that we need to take uh, in our national laboratories, If and that'll eliminate claims on both sides that there is, is bias in these hiring processes or these promotion processes. If the anti-discrimination laws that were put in place, uh, you know, since the civil rights movement, um, if those uh, laws and rules on the government level and on the, uh, you know, the private level uh, with regards to business haven't necessarily closed the gaps, um, are, can't you just say that they are not effective enough, that, that people aren't being tre- treated equally, that we do need to ramp up somehow the, the progress of civil rights? Um, yeah, yes and no. I would say the issue is that we have, um, I don't have all the solutions necessarily, but one of the big problems I see is when, when they're pushing um, this affirmative action, they aren't necessarily pushing it as affirmative action in our laboratories. There, there are laws that they have to be aware of, and a lot of this is pushed under the, under the guise of diversity, diversity and inclusion. And they say that telling these managers, do you value diversity? So when you're hiring, there is actually points added to a candidate based on how diverse they are and saying that, you know, you need to value diversity because it makes our team stronger. And I 100% agree with that sentiment that our teams need to be diverse. And diversity of thought is absolutely critical to engineers and scientists. Diversity of thought is is 
absolutely critical to our laboratories. But to say that diversity of thought solely comes out of diversity of skin color and diversity of gender is just not true. Some some of the I've met many extremely diverse thinkers that are white males. I've met uh, extremely brilliant diverse thinkers that that are females or minorities. You don't necessarily it doesn't one doesn't correlate with the other. So when they say do we value diversity, I agree with the sentiment, but how many points are they adding to this process? How much are we saying we value diversity? How how many points are they saying this adds to the hiring decision? Okay. So, uh, what are what's where are you guys right now and what what's going to happen uh going forward uh do you guys have like a little coalition you're doing videos right now is there websites going up um resources so as far as i i'm as far as i'm going the only uh media that i'm or social media that i'm on is uh on youtube at data-driven conclusions and i am now on twitter with the twitter handle of casey a peterson uh peterson spelled with e-n and that is where i guess i'm giving out the news, but the real important work is going on behind the scenes. I have, uh, when I sent out my original email, I sent out six separate sources for the video so people would be able to find it. And it didn't, it took a couple hours for them to scrub it from the internal emails. And I sent them a private email. I've been getting a ton of emails with people's stories from inside the national laboratory. Uh, and that, that is all getting sent up to the proper sor- governmental sources. We're sending that up to the, um, the DOE, the secretary of the energy. We're sending that up to the inspector general and to all the proper sources that those different materials need to be sent up to. And that is probably our, the most important thing that's happening on our front right now. Uh, the second most important thing is interviews like this and pushing this message out there, get, getting traction, making sure that, uh, normal, normal people are keeping pressure on to ensure these investigations happen and they're not they're not half-hearted i lost a lot of my faith in the organization such as hr and government relations and ethics after going through all of this process in sandia we cannot expect that these organizations even in the department of energy no matter who's heading it we can't expect that these processes are going to be done properly we have to keep the pressure on all the way through to the end of the investigations and ensure that these investigations are carried out correctly that means citizens of the united states as well as members of the workforce for our national laboratories so i think these are the most important things that we're doing right now is is pushing that national attention and and pushing this information directly to the government sources that um that need to see it absolutely um casey you are you're on a righteous path (laughs) and you're doing a lot of great work um you're coming out at the gate um basically out of nowhere with a lot of energy and it feels like you have support as well uh do you have anything else that you'd like to tell people about uh what's going on uh in the federal government and and these places that you're connected to um, yes, I would just like to thank everybody for for the support, especially the people from within laboratories and the people that are taking action. I, I've got a lot of people thanking me, and I appreciate the sentiment. But if you really care about this cause, taking action and getting getting contacting the right people, putting this in front of people, retweeting stuff, and pushing these videos is the most most important thing that we can be doing right now. So I, I just want to say thank you to everybody, and I will keep everybody updated on this front. And uh, regardless of what happens to me or my job, this this movement is not ending we are absolutely going to push this through to its proper end no matter how long or how long it takes or how painful it is we are going to see this through to its end because we failure is absolutely not an option here this is far too important for us to let this 
cause fall by the wayside. We have to keep pushing and get this out of our national laboratories and ensure this does not continue affecting our national security mission. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Casey, for your time. I will link all of the things in the description so that people can follow you and your resources. Thank you, Benjamin. I appreciate it. Cool. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I feel like that went that went well. <laughs> You're pretty busy. You are you are just cranking out the material, man. Really proud of you. <laughs> well, we, I mean, it's either now or never. So it's like the pressure has to stay on right now. This is this is extremely important. So yeah, we yeah. are we are going to keep cranking out material. Got another video I got to put out uh, today yeah. to make sure we keep people updated and motivated. It kind of feels like they misstepped by putting you on paid leave because now you just have all this time to devote to this. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think uh, either, either way, I would have found the time. I, I have uh, great help, and there's some people's laboratories that are reaching out, and, and so there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of people making this happen now. So no matter what they decide to do on their end, I think they were more, more worried about having uh, having the fox in the hen house. They did not want oh. me there. Being able to email more people, my personal email. There's some people that have had a hard time reaching me, and they they probably feel like they're a lot safer having me uh, out of that space right now. Wow. So I don't know. I'm just I'm just kind of. Uh, this is all conjecture on my part. I have no clue where their head's at. This is me just guess, guesstimating. Great. Well, um, cool. I'll let you get back to work, man. I'll let you know when this is up. And uh, hopefully uh, just more and more attention comes to you and your, your work. Awesome, Benjamin. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for promoting me on Twitter and things like that and getting this message out. So I appreciate it so much. You have yeah, no idea. I'm, a, thank I'm, you. I'm behind you 100%, dude. So reach out if you need anything else or you want me to share anything. All right. Awesome. Keep in touch. All right. Ciao. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.